really inform my life and help me try to change some of my attitudes in my life is the story of Hosea. It, it starts off with a, a theme which is just all too familiar. The people had turned their backs on God, so God reaches out to them. We've heard that before. You go through the Old Testament, you see it time and time and time and time again. In fact, in, you can say that's the theme of the Old Testament, is the people have turned their backs on God, and now God has reached out to them. And he's done that in a variety of ways. He's done it through the tabernacle and the temple. He's done it through priests. He's done it through kings. He's done it through judges. Done it through prophets. He's done it by wandering teachers. He's done it through miracles. He's even done it by foreign kings, captivity, release. It seems like he's tried everything. He even tried Ezekiel, who I, I call the Picasso of, of prophets, because it just seems to be a jumble of images that it's hard for us to even deal with. He preaches one sermon by making a hole in the wall of his home and dragging stuff in and out. There are pots that he uses that he puts disgusting stuff in for sermons. Nobody would hire Ezekiel today. I think most of us would try to have him medicated and put away. But God tried. If they won't take this prophet, maybe this will do. And then comes another story. God's not afraid to try something radically new. God's not afraid to go for something that will shock us. The problem was, the people who turned their backs on God didn't think they had. In their mind, everything was going great. The economy was booming. It, every, uh, the king, Jeroboam II, had made everything better. The, um, before he had come along, Assyria and Syria had taken uh, turns kicking uh, the Israelites and, and you know, stealing their lunch and, and beating them up and robbing. But now the king was there. Things were secure. The kingdom was at peace. Like I said, the economy is booming. Uh, everything is great. In fact, Jeho uh, Jeroboam's dad, Jehoash, came along and had done something which no king of Israel had ever done before, and that is he beat Syria three times. All three times they came. And when Jeroboam came, he was able to restore the kingdom's borders to the, where they were under David and Solomon. For goodness sake, he never gets credit for that. The land is now wealthy. They produced more food than they needed, which was extremely rare for that day and time in Earth's history. So they made money exporting food, which was amazing. They, they built. This is a period archaeologists show us where the building was booming. Housing, uh, government houses, uh, industrial and commercial zones being built all over. An entire generation had grown up knowing only peace and prosperity. Things are looking good. People could go off to work in the morning, do something worthwhile, and then come home to houses that their parents never could have afforded. And they did it all without fear of foreign raiders sweeping through their living rooms. Why is it that good, wonderful conditions such as these rarely produce the kind of behavior God wants. 
why is it that when we do really, really well, we, we tend to ignore and forget God? He goes out of the equation. We'll give him, we'll show up on Sunday. Sure. But we're so busy with our blessed activities the rest of the week uh, because we're so blessed to have them that he doesn't get much of a look in. Why is it the more blessings we have, the less we remember the one who gave them? And the more we tend to go into rebellion. When you go into poor areas of the earth, one of the you know, there will be many things that shock you. The smells, the poverty, the, um, the lack. But you will also see something else, and that is greater faith, bigger smiles, hope, where we, we cannot find a reason for them to hope and to smile, and yet they do. It seems that the more blessings you get, the more you think you deserve and that you should have and you don't. For whatever reason, the people had not really paid attention to God because they were just doing so great. Obviously, God loved them to pieces because they're the ones being blessed. So God tried a standard issue prophet, one of my favorite, Amos. Amos told them, you are chosen by God, but God doesn't have to keep you. <laughs> and didn't resonate. He said, no, really, they can choose somebody else. Nothing. He even reminded them, if you have peace and prosperity, it's because God gave that to you. Use this and care for the poor. Care for the traveler. Tra care for the other. Whatever, whoever the other is. Use your gifts and your wealth and share it rather than building more storage for yourself and enriching yourself. Amos went further. He says, if you don't, God can remove his hand of protection. And by the way, that's, um, that's one of the most frightening things that God can do. If God reaches out to punish you, that's a bad thing. That's a very bad thing. But it's not as bad as God removing his hand saying, okay, go without me. Because then there's no protection. There's no blessing. As scripture tells us, every good gift comes from the Father above. What if he says, okay, we're shutting the doors. They did not listen to Amos. So Amos finished by saying, you're going to be dust on the threshing floor again. It's an expression. Threshing was to take the wheat and you were to bang it. And you could throw it into the air. The chaff was lighter. The chaff is the worthless part. Lighter than the grain. So you're threshing and the chaff blows away and the grain falls down. But it takes a lot of throwing it up in the air to get this done creates a ton of dust. The most worthless thing in the world is the dust on the threshing floor. And Amos said, that's what you're going to be. But they ignored him. Traditional preaching had not worked. So God decided to try someone else next. And some whole new concept next. Once again, God's not afraid of change. God's not afraid of trying something new. It is shocking that so many of his children are terrified of change. As I often say, if you don't like change, you're in the wrong universe. Because everything here changes, and changing is a point of the universe. And in scripture, they're always on the move. And they are trying something new, when, especially when what worked in the past isn't working now. 
Sadly, too many of Christians today believe that what worked in the past will work today if we just do it harder, longer, and criticize those who don't do it. Isn't that weird? That's the way it works. God refuses to be bound by our conventions, our traditions, and our ideas, and he will not live in the box that we have lovingly crafted for him. In fact, God is about to scandalize a community uh, and just about every theologian that ever lived. And scandalize is a very strong word, but it's not nearly as strong as what's about to happen. It's horrifying. It is, it is a, a great disruption that God is going to cause. He's going to put one of his prophets, one of his priests, through a terrible ordeal right in front of everybody. And it's not going to be an event. It's going to be a process. It's going to take a long time. It's going to play out day after day, year after year after year after year. This horrifying thing continues. It's not an earthquake that's going to be gone in, in 10 seconds or two minutes. It's going to keep going for years, breaking up everything. And it centers on somebody God loves. Actually, he, he loves him and he loves the people he's going to hurt. And he loves the people who are all around them. God's about to unleash something very new. He's going to take happiness away from one of his priests. He's going to take away his place in society. He's going to take away his dignity. But this is an emergency. Emergency measures are, are sometimes required. If you travel a lot, sometime during your travels, you may very well be asleep at night when the fire alarm goes off and you are required to exit the hotel. You will be tempted to do what everybody is tempted to do. Get up, get dressed and pretty yourself up and take all your favorite stuff with you. But you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to come as you are, which, by the way, no matter how bad you are, when you get with the group, you're going to find others are more terrifying. So go ahead and go. They'll say, get your prescriptions, but everything else leave behind. You may not look good. You may not feel good. You may not get sleep and light, but it's an emergency. Because it's an emergency, measures have to be taken. And it was an emergency for Israel. But before God brought... The, uh, the last possible judgment he could make, which is dust on the threshing floor. He's got to do this one disruption. He's got to give them a story acted out in front of them with real people in a pathetic situation. I don't know what we would call the story today. The story of the bad woman and the brokenhearted lover. The story of the angry, bitter husband and the wife who ran away. I don't know what we would call it. You'd probably have a better title for it than, than I do. I'm not good with titles. But the Bible just calls it Hosea. God goes to Hosea, a prophet, a preacher, and tells him to marry a prostitute, a sex worker. There are some who say, well, maybe she wasn't a pro, she was just a loose woman. There are others who try to say, this whole thing is just a story. It's a metaphor. No, these are real people. Haven't you lived around real people? Haven't you seen their pain? 
Haven't you seen how their stories go sideways? And not just go sideways, but into a ditch, hit a brick wall and fall into a dumpster that's on fire. Haven't you seen this? Preacher's wives come in all kinds of flavors. And poor women are often uh, the, the preacher's wives or the preacher's husband, if it's, you know, however this works, if it's a woman preaching, however it is, they're looked at, they're judged. I can remember many places that, that would say, we would love for you to come and be our minister. And I'd talk to them because I've always been a traveler. And then they would say, now, tell us about what your wife likes to do. And I said, my wife likes to be my wife. And she likes to live her life. If you hire me, you're hiring one person. And there were churches that are actually a bit offended by that. No, she's supposed to run the ladies' day. She's supposed to teach a Bible class for children. She's supposed to... No. No. Now, some ministers' wives do that, and they thrive. They love it. Others are, are terrified introverts that wish their husband would take any other job. We're, we're aware of that. You've seen that. Ministers' wives, uh, ministers' husbands come in all kinds of flavors. But this is a new one. How would you like, how would you explain this to your family? Mom and dad, getting married. Family was bigger to them than it is to us, as hard as that may be for you to believe. No matter how big it is in your life, it was a lot bigger to them. It was life, history, survival. It was everything. And they're so excited. Who is she? And then walks in, you know, Trixie, Boopsie, something. What was, how could you explain this to your community? How could you explain this to the people in the synagogue or the temple? Are they going to come listen to you? Aren't, aren't they going to look over there and go, what? This is wrong. First of all, you are a, a priest. You're a prophet. You're not allowed to be near one of those people. You're supposed to stay away from those people. We're better than those people. You, you know and I know that's what's said, done, and thought. So, you know, let those people over there. You're a minister, so hang around the good people. Do good things to good people. That's what ministers are supposed to do, right? Would anyone listen to a man who had a wife like this? But this is a live, acted out version of the reality of God and us. God had made an agreement to love and cherish Israel. And they'd made an agreement to belong to him and to no other. But now they'd forgotten the one who'd surrounded them with love and care and given them presents like a peaceful life and stuff and freedom from invasion. And what did it look like? You ever love somebody that didn't love you back? Did you ever have your heart set on someone that claimed they loved you and maybe they led you on? You gave them gifts maybe you couldn't even afford, but you did it because you... You're trying to win them, to woo them, to show them how important they are to you. What would it feel like if you were to see them with somebody else and that somebody else had the gifts that you'd given the one you wanted to woo? They'd taken your gifts and given it to another lover. God describes that as his reality in the Old Testament. That the gifts I gave you, you gave to other lovers. 
and you ran after them when I was trying to run after you. God is brokenhearted in the Old Testament. If you see God as a thunderous, judging God, slinging lightning bolts and disapproving of people, you've not read the Old Testament. He continually tries to bring back the fallen person. Israel had committed adultery against God and God was brokenhearted. So he launched a new tactic. This story acted out right in front of everybody. A child is born. It, it may be Hosea's but that's not certain. God tells Hosea to name this child Jezreel. That would be like naming one of our children Pearl Harbor or Auschwitz. Because it was a, Jezreel was a horrible defeat of the Israelites. And you're to name your son, your firstborn son, tragic defeat. Well, Jezreel, by the way, if you want to look it up, 2 Kings 9, it's back where Jehu slaughtered the king's family. His name was, was supposed to make people shrink from him and shake their heads in shame. Um, instead of the boogeyman, they'd say Jehu is coming. And then another child. It's possibly Hosea's, but that's not certain. Not with his wife's reputation. God tells Hosea to name this boy this 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 daughter, I'm sorry, unloved. Now I have a son and I have a daughter, one of each. There's no way I would name Duncan after a great tragedy. And firstborn uh, in our family was a daughter. We named her Kara Kalin in the Gaelic, which means dear little girl. God told Hosea, name this child unloved. Literally, if you look at the language, it means no longer pursued by love. Love has given up on this child. Can you even imagine? How could you do that to a child? How could you explain this to people on the street, to your family? And yet, what they had done to God was just as shocking. They had given him the name unloved by the way they lived by the way they ignored him, and by the way they had used the gifts he had given them. So the second child had a dark and terrible name, and they would no longer be pursued by love. One day the knock at the door would be silent. And who would stand up for them on that day? When you've driven God away, who's, who's left there to defend you? And who could blame God for breaking off the pursuit? The third child comes along and is named, Not My People. God says, sadly, you are no longer my people, and I am no longer your God. The child's name means disowned. They'd run after other lovers, Israel had. They'd forgotten all the wonderful promises they'd made to God. And now the names of these three children reflect the future of the state of Israel, the people of Israel, not the modern state, the people of Israel. Violence would come, but God wouldn't be there anymore. He'd quit pursuing. He'd withdrawn his hand. They'd be abandoned, alone. You cannot understand the prophetic passages in Hosea until you understand that God is brokenhearted. He asked Hosea to do a horrible thing, but he'd gone through worse. 
read Hosea chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. Read the whole book. It's not that long. But Hosea 2, 8 through 13, to see the broken heart of God. But then, amazingly, God says, I still want to try to win her back. In chapter 2, verses 14 through 23. He still wants to win us back. After all of this, by the way, at this point in the story, Hosea's wife, who is named Gomer, you can laugh if you wish, but that was a common name at the time. She's gone. God tells Hosea, go find her and woo her, talk her back into coming home again. Now, here's where I really want to bring up a possibility. It could be that this marriage could have worked, although he would have never been a prophet again. He had never been accepted by his family and the like again. But it could have been that Hosea was just a horrible man to live with. And so Gomer found solace with other men. Maybe he was the villain in the story. We'd, we don't know. So it'd be best if we didn't assign all the blame here on Gomer. Maybe we shouldn't be assigning blame at all, but just watching the story. Well, where does he go? He is, he's told by God, go find her. When you find her, you do not order her back. You do not force her back. You woo her back. Somehow, show her so much love, so much forgiveness, that she will be happy to go with you and live with you forever. So he goes in search of her, and guess where he finds her? On a slave auction block. What a state she must have been in. She had fallen so low by that stage that the price for her was the lowest legal price you could pay to buy a slave. So she was considered the most worthless of all slaves. He pays the price. She comes home. And he changes the names of the children to show that the relationship now will be new. She came home, she is wooed, and so the children will now be named happiness and greatly loved and always pursued. I, it, it'll, the names are changed. This is my child. The story of Hosea is not our story. Our story is the story of Gomer. We are the ones standing on the slave block. We received gifts from the hand of God and we wasted them on false lovers. We threw them away to the winds. We sold ourselves for so little, so often, that we find ourselves on the slave block and there's nobody there who wants us. And then he comes in. Jesus comes in. The Son of God enters the slave market and walks up to us. We, we don't want him to see us this way. We, we turn away, but he does not shrink from us. Not our look, not our smell, not our station, not our reality. Instead, he declares his love for us and tells us he wants to take us home. Not as a slave, not, a, not on probation. But as a wife, a son, a daughter, an honored and greatly loved person. And then he pays for us. He pays a lot more for us than we're worth. 
he gives his life. But that is the cost of complete and utter redemption, salvation to the uttermost. Hosea was never to treat Gomer as if she had ever done any wrong, ever. He was never to bring it up. He was to treat her as a precious bride and the children as his beloved children because that's exactly the way God treats us when he finds us where he finds us. In our ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, we remember the day he walked in and saved us. Now, sometimes to our shame, we have to admit that he's had to walk in and save us more than once. But he is still willing if we are still willing. Remember the story. Read it again. Because it's our story. But our story is not the story of Hosea. We're Gomer. And once we understand that, we'll understand our own sin, yes, but I don't want you to live under shame and guilt and dirt and ducking of your head. Neither does God. That's the point of the story. The point of the story is to show you the love of God. Trust the love of God. Let it bathe you. Let him pursue you. And then don't forget him. And use the gifts he gave you as he intended. May God bless you. May God give you peace.